I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we're interpreting the book of Isaiah. Our text is Isaiah 1, 10 through 31. Halleck Motier titles Isaiah 1 through 5, The Preface, Judah, Diagnosis and Prognosis. He picks up on the image from our last lesson of the man so damaged in his rebellion that his body is covered from the sole of his foot to his head with bruises, welts, and raw wounds. Those wounds are not cared for, not bandaged, not softened with oil. Why is the nation of Judah so sick and faint? Through his first five chapters, Isaiah provides a diagnosis, explaining the spiritual disease of Judean society. Isaiah also provides prognosis. That is where the disease will take each person if left untreated. Verse 1 gave us a historical reference of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. The vision of Isaiah took place during the reigns of those kings. That reference is for the whole book of Isaiah. We will not get another specific historical reference until chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of Uzziah's death, Isaiah responds to God's call to ministry. It's probably right to view these five chapters as describing the societal situation of Judah, concurrent with that vision in chapter 6, or even a little after that vision. That's why we're calling this the preface. These chapters set up the state of Judean society at the beginning of Isaiah's ministry as described in this book. Chapter 1 consists of three poetic passages. We covered the first in our last lesson. Judah was described as a rebellious child that does not know God. That child despised his father and showed it in his behavior, becoming as unlike his holy father as possible, wicked and corrupt. That's prognosis, a description of the state of Judah. We were also told that in spite of Judah's beaten-up state, things would get worse. The land would be overrun and Jerusalem besieged. That's prognosis. That's where this spiritual disease is headed. Isaiah continues in the next two passages of chapter 1 addressing the religious and social sickness of Judah. We receive the religious diagnosis in verses 10 to 20 and the social diagnosis in 21 to 31. First, the middle passage of the chapter, Isaiah 1, 10 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. 
But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The passage begins with what would normally be a positive call to God's people to hear the word of the Lord, give ear to the instruction of our God. The parallel phrases completely change the effect. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. We're reminded that Judah, both the rulers and the people, has shut its ears to God's word. There is no more damning comparison possible than Sodom and Gomorrah. The comparison implies that the people of Judah can no longer depend on the covenant protection that has so far held back God's wrath against their sin. The rest of the passage divides into two subsections at verse 11 and verse 18, both of which include the phrase, says the Lord. Verse 10 gave the general call to hear the word of the Lord, Now in two places, Isaiah tells us what the Lord says. The first word of the Lord is that Judah's hypocritical religion not only fails to win favor with God, it repulses God. This is how God feels about Judah's temple worship, verses 11 to 14. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure your iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. We shouldn't read this as an overturning of the Mosaic sacrificial system. Isaiah does not believe that God abhors all temple ceremony, all sacrifice and incense. God established this system himself. Sacrifice and incense were God's idea. Why then the strong language of repulsion? And it is strong language. I've had enough. I take no pleasure. Who requires this trampling? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. It's an abomination to me. That's strong Earlier in verse 4, Isaiah described Judah as a people weighed down with iniquity. Here it is God who is weighed down, and the burden is the same. It is the iniquity of Judah that weighs God down. It's bad enough that Judah has turned away from the moral law of God. Even worse, they think they can turn away from the moral law and still gain favor by practicing the ceremonial law. It's this total disconnection between life outside of the temple and ceremony inside of the temple. That's the combination God hates. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. It's the two things together. You live how you want to live outside of my temple, and then you come into my temple with serious faces, praying and and sacrificing with solemnity. You are taking advantage of, of the vulnerable and weak in society, Monday through Friday. You are watching internet porn, and you're getting drunk on Saturday, and you're yelling at your wife, and you're ignoring your kids. I mean, even even as you drive up to the church parking lot, and then you come into my house, and, and you pray, and you take the Lord's Supper, and you sing the hymns, how can you not see 
that performing religious behavior while actively choosing to live immoral lives is abhorrent to me. Isaiah applies the weight of sin language to God. Your hypocritical religious actions have become a burden. I am weary of bearing them. This is where we come to that passage of incremental repetition that I used as an example in our last lesson. Imagine it again. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, imagine worshipers in the temple with hands held up in solemn worship. I will hide my eyes from you. Now God's face comes into view, but it's turned away from the worshipers. He's not willing to look at them. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, and they pray many prayers, and they're in the temple, and they're praying, they come back week after week, I will not listen. There is no response from God. Not only is he not hearing, he's not doing anything about their requests. Then looking back at the uplifted hands of the worshipers, we see something we had not seen before, but God had seen all along. Your hands are covered with blood. Blood should not necessarily be absent from the kind of temple worship that pleases God. This is definitely an Old Testament thing. This is not in our churches. The assembly ought to be solemn. God-given Jewish worship recognized the deadly problem of sin. This life is serious, and our sin problem is serious, and death is real. And the sacrifice of animals brought the seriousness of sin into the house of God. So we might not be surprised to see a trace of blood on the hand of a Jewish worshiper who who has sacrificed out, out of thanksgiving or out of repentance or they've given a burnt offering, some kind of mosaic sacrifice. And through its symbolism, that, that blood brought cleansing to the worshiper who believed in God's willingness and power to forgive their sin. But Isaiah turns that image of worship around. He's not speaking of blood sacrifice on the hands of the worshiper. He's speaking of the blood of oppression and injustice in the way they have treated their neighbors when they are outside the temple walls. The blood of unrepentant sin stains the worshiper's hands, stains their clothes. That's why God turns away. It's the stink of haughty sin. God must forgive. That's his job. What rubbish. God closes his eyes and turns his face away from such religion, even when the ceremony of that religion is exactly in line with his own stipulations. Whether it's old covenant stipulations or new covenant, whether it's baptism, Lord's Supper, singing hymns, that wouldn't change this passage. It's not the ceremony God abhors. It's the hypocrisy. If you want God to listen to your prayers, you must do something about the blood on your hands. God requires it. Verse 16 and 17, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. That's why God turned his eyes away. He saw the deeds of the worshipers. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. That is what God requires. Good may not naturally come to a society that has turned for some time away from God. That's why it says here, learn to do good. Be in process. Seek to do what's right. 
And we might ask whether or not a person can succeed in washing himself clean. How is that even possible? Whatever the answer to that question, which maybe Isaiah will get to later, but whatever the answer, it doesn't remove the moral obligation that we have before a holy God to attempt to be clean from, from wickedness. We are morally bound to make a try you know, to do what we can do to wash our hands of blood and to remove evil deeds from God's sight. That's a display of true belief in the holiness of God. Remember how Jesus said we ought to first make reconciliation with our brother and then come to present offering to God, Matthew 5, 24. Sincere worship doesn't exist if there is no sincere attempt to do what is right outside the temple, outside the church. And according to Isaiah here, it's not enough that we don't oppress the orphan or widow. You know, that's just a negative. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing bad. That's not enough. God's people are called to positive action. They're called to seek justice, to speak up, to reprove the ruthless, to defend the orphan, to plead for the widow. We're called to positive action. Moving on to verse 18, we enter into the second subsection of the passage indicated by a repetition of the phrase, says the Lord. We've heard God's rejection of the perverted national religion practiced by Judah that assumed cleanliness could be obtained by ceremonial ritual without any attempt at at trying to love one's neighbor. This subsection begins, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. It's our second, says the Lord. The Lord has something else to say about the matter. He doesn't leave it with the admonition to wash yourself clean. That's a beginning. The desire and attempt to live in line with the moral character of God is an expression of faith. It's a beginning. But we must reason together with God. We know or will soon realize that we cannot satisfy God's holy standard on our own. We do need a way to be cleansed. God is willing to do it. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. These words continue in the imagery of sacrifice. Isaiah reminds me of my brother Bill. He knows his colors. He uses three words to suggest blood, scarlet, red, and crimson. White as snow, like wool, connects us to the wool of a lamb. So at the same time that we're reminded of the blood of sacrifice, we also remember the blood on the hands of the worshiper, the stain of sin. So when the throat of a lamb is cut, the red seeps into the wool. God says he will make it white again. We might picture standing in a woolen robe, ruined by the stain of blood, somehow perfectly cleansed to a state of gleaming white wool. This sounds like atoning grace, somebody taking our place apart from our own works, and we wouldn't be wrong to read that into this declaration of of cleansing. We don't have to wait for a New Testament theology uh, in order to understand substitutional atonement. Isaiah would have understood substitutionary atonement from Moses, but he doesn't develop that line of thinking here. He declares God's willingness to cleanse, but he keeps his focus on the moral obligation required of a people claiming covenant fellowship with God. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We begin with a call to hear the word of the Lord. We end with, truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. 
Here at the end, Isaiah has communicated using a covenant blessing and curse formula. Obedience brings blessing, rebellion curse. I'll read it again. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. Blessing. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Curse. It would be easy to take that as a basic statement of legalistic religion. You know, If you do good, you're accepted. If you do bad, you're rejected. But that simple theological view, while in line with Job's friends, fails to capture Old Testament theology. For starters, we have to put Isaiah's words into a correct covenant context. Even though Isaiah doesn't use the word covenant here, he's using the language of covenant. I deal with Near Eastern Covenant extensively in my podcast on interpreting the Pentateuch. I'll keep it very basic here just to clarify Isaiah's language and to set up an issue for us to look for later on in the book. Near Eastern suzerain vassal treaties at the time of Moses contained seven standard elements. A suzerain is a king of kings. A vassal is a lesser king that has sworn allegiance to a king of kings. God is king of kings over all peoples. Israel is a special vassal people among whom he has built his temple and he's given them his law, which is his covenant with them. The seven standard elements of our Near Eastern covenant can be seen in Deuteronomy, which was a renewal of covenant that God made with the second generation out of Egypt. The first element of a second millennium suzerain vassal treaty is the title, such as I am Yahweh your God in Deuteronomy 5.6. The second element is the historical prologue, such as the very short who brought you up out of Egypt, also in Deuteronomy 5.6, or the longer historical recap of Deuteronomy 1-3. through The third element is the stipulations, including basic stipulations, such as the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5.7-21, and detailed stipulations, such as the long list of laws in Deuteronomy 12-26. through The fourth element is the deposition and regular reading. That's the placing of the law in the temple and the command to read that law regularly, found in Deuteronomy 31, 9 through 11. The fifth element is witnesses, such as the call to heaven and earth in Deuteronomy 30 to 19. The sixth element is blessings, such as those listed in Deuteronomy 28. And the seventh element is curses, such as those listed in Deuteronomy 27. In verse 2, if you remember, Isaiah called heaven and earth as witnesses to his condemnation of Judah. I read last week the corresponding example of witnesses in Deuteronomy 30 19. I'll read it again since it also includes language of blessing and curse, like we have here in verse 20. Deuteronomy 30 19. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. That language of blessing and curse is what we just read in Isaiah 120. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. So we're putting that into covenant context. There is an agreement made, a covenant entered into with the king of kings. And if you're faithful to the king with whom you've entered into covenant, you will receive blessing, good consequences, If you're unfaithful to your king, you can expect curses, bad consequences. Now, there are two natural questions that must be asked regarding the covenant. The first question is, what is the basis for my relationship with my king? 
Is it my bloodline? Is it my great behavior? Is it my wisdom? What is the basis that allows me to enter into and stay in in relationship with my king? The second question is, how should I live once I'm in covenant relationship with my king? We're going to find that especially this first question has has a very different answer in biblical covenant than it did in ancient Near Eastern covenant. That's because our king is holy. Our God is holy, and he demands holiness as a requirement for relationship. That's something that we could not attain. God must accomplish it for us. And that's why God walked through the pieces of covenant sacrifice in Genesis 15. It's why God provided the Passover lamb in Exodus 12. It's why God established the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. It's why he raised up the bronze serpent in Numbers 21. It's why he promised restoration after exile in Deuteronomy 31. God foreshadowed through ritual ceremony that he was going to handle our sin problem. Somehow in the future, he had an answer. That's why the Old Covenant answers the first question of covenant in exactly the same way the New Covenant answers that question. What is the basis for relationship with the Holy God? 0% works you do and 100% the grace God gives. You can only receive it by faith. If it's based on your works at all, you will fail. Now, the Old and New Covenants do not answer the second question the same way. That question, how then shall we live, is defined by covenant you're under. There's overlap between the Old and the New, but there are also major differences. So we have to keep that in mind when we're reading Isaiah. The people of Judah were bound to live according to the covenant they were in with God, and we're bound to live according to a different covenant, the New Covenant. So that's how we answer, how shall we live? But the foundation, the basis for covenant relationship, the first question is by grace through faith. That's no different for us and them. So what is Isaiah doing by invoking the language of blessing and curse? Isaiah is performing the role of covenant lawsuit prophet. He's not a covenant mediator prophet. There are not many of those. That would be like Abraham, Moses, Jesus. Isaiah is not establishing a new covenant for the people of God. He's applying the covenant that exists, the Mosaic covenant, to Judah. And he finds Judah in rebellion against that covenant, and he declares their guilt, and he calls them to repentance. That's the role of a covenant lawsuit prophet. Assessing the behavior of Judah, he declares them um, to have violated the covenant. In a sense, he's bringing a lawsuit against the nation. And he's declaring the ongoing consequence of disobedience, curse, and the the consequences of, of repentance and obedience, blessing. There are moral consequences to how we live out the covenant. Now, there are two things for us to be on the lookout in Isaiah. First, does he develop more the idea of salvation by grace through faith? Will Isaiah make clear a a distinction between the two questions of covenant, between the basis for Judah's relationship with God and the commands that Judah ought to follow? He's not made that distinction, not yet. We get just a taste of it that he's promised to cleanse, to remove the stain of sin. But how? What does that look like? We don't have much here yet. So we're gonna, we'll are gonna we wait to see, does Isaiah develop those concepts in his book? 
We also need to watch out for language that distinguishes between the faithful of Judah and the rebellious of Judah. In one sense, all Jews are God's promised people, Israel. That designation applies to everyone born into one of the 12 tribes, every daughter or son of Jacob. But it's also true that most of the Jews through most of Old Testament history are depicted as rebellious and faithless. There's a smaller group, a spiritual Israel within the nation of Israel, that is called a remnant. These do not keep the law perfectly, but they have truly believed in Yahweh, are trusting him for salvation, and seek to live for him. So it's going to make a a difference for us in how we understand the curses that are declared by Isaiah or the judgment. Does this apply to the whole nation of Israel? And if so, what what of the believing remnant inside of Israel? Does the curse apply the same to those who believe and those who don't believe? We will see an example of that in our second passage, so let's move on to chapter 121 to 31. In our first passage, Isaiah described God's perspective on hypocritical worship in his temple. This passage repeats the charges of that passage, but it focuses not on the temple, it focuses on the city, Jerusalem. This is Isaiah 1, 21 to 31. How the faithful city has become a harlot, she who was full of justice, righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water, your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves, everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lie and will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness but transgressors and sinners will be crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away, or as a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. This passage also divides into two subsections. The first subsection is bounded by 21a and 26b, both of which refer to Jerusalem as a faithful city. 21a, how the faithful city has become a harlot. And 26b, after that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Isaiah begins with a couplet in verse 21 that compares Jerusalem's present to her past. The couplet is chiastic, The two phrases of the first line describe present, then past. The next line reverses that order, speaking first of past, then moving to present. It's present situation, past, past, back to present. Listen to it. See if you catch that. How the faithful city has become a harlot. She who was full of justice. Righteousness once lodged in her, but now murderers. What was Jerusalem? a faithful city full of justice and righteousness. What is Jerusalem? A harlot, a city where murderers lodge. 
And notice that Isaiah did not say Jerusalem was full of harlots, full of murderers, not full of harlots. He said Jerusalem has become a harlot. It's not a statement about sexual immorality. It's a statement about religious infidelity. Jerusalem, the bride of God, has joined herself to another Lord. We'll see that idea developed in our second subsection below. And we should probably also assume that murderers, while including those who literally take the life of others, includes more. It includes all the sins on the continuum of do not murder. As Jesus taught in Matthew 5.22, we commit the sin of murder when we disdain the life of another individual with our thoughts. That can be as little as calling someone else a fool. We disdain life with our words, and we can disdain life in a whole continuum of actions before actually getting as far as murder. The ruthlessness and abuse of widow and orphan mentioned in verse 17 lie on this continuum. Jesus made it hard for us to separate ourselves from the sins of murder and adultery. It's one thing if it's only those extremes, but Jesus says, no, it's this whole continuum of thoughts, words, and actions. So we also should be careful not to disassociate ourselves too easily from Isaiah's condemnation of Jerusalem. There's this whole continuum of wicked thoughts, words, and deeds going on in Jerusalem. So we can also ask, in what ways do we disdain the lives of other individuals? Or how do we see the disdaining of life in our cities? It's not just murder. In his prophecy, Isaiah often moves from a simple metaphorical description of an idea to a concrete statement of the idea. He does that in verses 22 and 23. Your silver has become dross, your drink diluted with water. That's the metaphor. Dross is the impure substance that floats to the top when metal is heated to a liquid state. You scrape off the dross to render the metal purer. That which Jerusalem considers precious silver has actually become worthless dross. It's full of impurity. It's like wine diluted with so much water it loses its taste or potency. So those are two metaphors. Isaiah then describes concretely what he has in mind. This is verse 23. Your rulers are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and chases after rewards. They do not defend the orphan, nor does the widow's plea come before them. This is how the society of Jerusalem has become impure and polluted and watered down. And the emphasis here is greed. The rulers have rebelled. Greed is considered rebellion against the covenant of God, and it leads to an abuse of the people most vulnerable in society, like orphans and widows. Jerusalem has become unjust. That's the diagnosis. Verse 25 and 24 give us prognosis. This is where that unjust behavior is going to take them. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, Ah, I will be relieved of my adversaries and avenge myself on my foes. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as would lie and will remove all your alloy. The military language of Lord God of hosts and mighty one of Israel rightly applies in the Jewish mind towards God's avenging wrath against foe and adversary. Isaiah declares that this same wrath will be turned against Jerusalem. Just as God turns away from the hypocritical worshipers of our previous passage, he will also remove covenant protection from his capital city. They will feel the wrath of God in the same way as wicked pagan enemies, like Sodom and Gomorrah, already referred to, 
but actually not exactly like Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a difference here, and this is interesting. God's fire destroyed both of those cities. There was no coming back from that. The fire of wrath described here has a purifying element. When God turns his hand against Jerusalem, it will be like precious metal heated up. The dross will be burned away and the precious alloy removed for use. And so we get this word of future hope after this purification in verse 26. Then I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. God's purifying fire will restore Jerusalem back to what she had once been. And maybe we're to imagine Jerusalem during the best of David's reign, a place of just judges and wise counselors, a righteous and faithful city. The language has been emphasizing a breakdown at the top. You know, the judgment covers all levels of society, but there is a special mention of rebellious rulers. And this restoration depicts a new kind of judges and counselors that lead the city in righteousness and faithfulness. The need for righteous leadership is a theme of Isaiah, and it doesn't discount the responsibility of every individual, but it does suggest this this need we have, or the need that society has, for good, um, just, wise leadership. Isaiah develops the idea of purifying a redemptive wrath in the final subsection of the chapter, verses 27 to 31. This is where we first notice two kinds of people in Judean society. And there's a difference between a repentant remnant and a rebellious majority. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. But transgressors and sinners will be crushed together and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. The just punishment to come will result in the redemption of Zion and the repentant ones in Zion. Zion's another word for Jerusalem. That's the minority remnant. The punishment will not be redemptive for those who persist in rebellion. They will be crushed. They will come to an end. That's the language Isaiah uses for them. So the curse, the punishment that's coming on Jerusalem has a different effect depending on whether we're talking about the remnant or the majority. And we have to keep that in mind as we go through Isaiah. Isaiah continues his prognosis uh, speaking of the rebellious majority. These are the final three verses of the chapter. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away or is a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall burn together, and there will be none to quench them. The reference to oaks and gardens is a reference to places of pagan Canaanite worship. These trees and these special gardens, that's where you go to worship Baal and Asherah, the pagan gods and goddesses. This is the harlotry that was referred to in verse 21. Jerusalem has become like a harlot because her people, the majority, have gone away to these other gods. There are always spiritual options in society. There are always sources apart from God where people go to seek out significance or control or pleasure. And all other religions, all substitute spirituality, all idols of the heart, ultimately fail to provide true life in abundance. The oaks and the gardens that these people choose over Yahweh, 
are going to leave them ashamed and embarrassed of people that has put their faith in, in false sources of significance and false sources of life. Jerusalem will look like an oak in the winter whose leaf has faded away, like a garden mirage in the desert that actually has no water. The desires of the heart cannot be filled apart from God. We cannot be the captain of our own souls. Final verse, the strong man will become tender, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. That's the closing of this chapter. That's also the closing of the book. The end of chapter 1 is foreshadowing the end of chapter 66. Isaiah's diagnosis of Judah sets us up to understand the times in which Isaiah ministered. It also provides a mirror by which we might assess our own churches, our own national religions, and our own societies. If you would like the text of this lesson with some reflection questions, or if you'd like the overview chart or other resources that go with our study of Isaiah, then check out our resource page at observetheword.com. You can also find there our previous series on the Book of Romans, the Pentateuch, the Gospel of John, and the Book of Acts.